The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. In 1925, a young Englishman was at the end of his rope. He had dropped out of Oxford for poor academic performance. Instead, he bounced around a bit, developing a taste for finer things and a partying lifestyle. Needing cash, he found a job as a schoolteacher, which he found gloomy and isolating. But as the son of a publisher, he had some connections, and as the writer of short stories since the age of seven, when he completed The Curse of the Horse Race, he had some ambition. He wrote a novel, and then... Fortunately, his connections paid off when it appeared that the Scottish writer C.K. Scott Moncrief, who was then in the middle of translating Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, was going to hire him as a secretary. But this brief moment of hope was quickly dashed when the job fell through. He sent his draft novel to a friend to review, but the return response was so dismissive he burned the manuscript. Instead, he decided to kill himself. He wrote a note in classical Greek, left it with his clothes, and walked out to sea. Before he could die, a jellyfish attacked him, and he turned around and hastened back to shore. From there, things went better, not so much in terms of outward happiness, but at least in terms of success. Over the next three or so decades, he became widely regarded as one of the foremost masters of English prose in the 20th century, and many said that he was simply the best. His name was Evelyn Waugh. He was about as good a novelist as one can be, said George Orwell, while holding untenable opinions. Untenable opinions. For Orwell, that meant Catholicism, anti-modernism, traditionalism, conservatism. I wish I'd been born two or three centuries earlier, Waugh used to say. By the end of his life, as his satirical wit became more preachy than pointed, most of the public agreed with Orwell. Untenable opinions. And as time has worn on and we move even further away from the 1930s and 40s and some then commonly held views on race and anti-Semitism, certain of the opinions look even less tenable than they did in Orwell's time. But at his best, Waugh had the gift for examining and satirizing himself as well as the rest of the world. Untenable Opinions is the sort of title he might have given to one of his novels, fitting right in with Vile Bodies, Black Mischief, Work Suspended, Decline and Fall, Unconditional Surrender, and, of course, Brideshead Revisited. Those stand on the shelf with A Handful of Dust, the book we will be looking at today with our guest Phil Cly. Phil is himself a novelist and short story writer, a winner of the National Book Award, and, like Evelyn Waugh, a military veteran and a Catholic. We'll talk with Phil about Evelyn Waugh and A Handful of Dust, 
and lots of other things as well, including his involvement in a new podcast, American Veteran, Unforgettable Stories. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. We have revisited the squirrel issue, and I have given in. I know you love squirrels, people, and those of you who have called me squirrel-like, I accept. Friendly, you mean. Eager, a little bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I said to my old friend Blume, I grew up wanting to be suave and debonair like Cary Grant. And instead, I turned out to be a squirrel. And she said, you know what? If I close my eyes and imagine a squirrel talking, I can hear Cary Grant's voice. So, hey, there we go. Who am I to argue? Your humble squirrel is here to serve and host. Thank you, Blume. Moving on. We have a big show today. Phil Cly is here. He has a new podcast that's all about veterans returning from their service and telling their stories. Phil himself did something similar. After serving in the Marine Corps in Iraq in 2007 and 2008, he wrote a book of short stories about his experiences. The result, called Redeployment, was a huge success, much praised, and is very worth reading. The stalwart New York Times war journalist Dexter Filkins said of that book that, quote, Clay, I almost said Clay, <laughs> I had a moment with Phil. <laughs> Should I tell you this? Reveal my... <laughs> I had a moment with Phil where at the beginning of our interview I said, well, usually I ask for pronunciation advice, but I think I can handle K-L-A-Y as Clay. And he said, well, actually, it's Cly. <laughs> Wrong again, Jack Wilson. Okay, here we go. Dexter Filkins said of that book that, quote, Cly succeeds brilliantly, capturing on an intimate scale the ways in which the war in Iraq evoked a unique array of emotion, predicament, and heartbreak. Iraq comes across not merely as a theater of war, but as a laboratory for the human condition in extremis. Redeployment is the best thing written so far on what the war did to people's souls. End quote. It won the National Book Award for Fiction. Now he's written a new book, Missionaries, a novel that has earned many comparisons to Joseph Conrad. Not too shabby. Phil accepts a position among Catholic writers. That's large C Catholic. The ones who ask questions. The ones who grapple with doubt. Flannery O'Connor and Graham Greene among them. And when I asked Phil to select a book to discuss, he chose Evelyn Waugh, the great granddaddy of Catholic novelists. But what does that mean exactly to be a Catholic novelist? Waugh was a lot of things. He's hard to pin down. And in fact, that's kind of when he's at his best and most compelling, when this special cauldron of his is swirling all together, swirling and smoking, steaming, <laughs> smelling up the place. When Waugh is least interesting, he's delivering one ingredient with seasoning of his choice. When he's at his best, he's more like a warlock, stirring the pot full of all kinds of elements, godly and ungodly alike, and he's in control for the most part. It's his recipe anyway, but there is an awful lot going on in that cauldron. Our cook 
threw a lot of things in. We'll talk about what those things are and what we should make of this Catholic, conservative, bullying, snobby, traditionalist who was also gay or had gay relationships, a courageous, if unlikable, soldier. He was generous as well as being curmudgeonly, and he was devoted to literature, and he was funny, darkly funny. He put into his fiction a woman whose son had the same name as her lover. They were both named John. When told that John had died, her first thought was that it was her lover, and she was aghast. After her mistake was corrected, and it was her son, not her lover, who had died, the now childless woman thinks, oh, thank God. Characters who are unwitting cannibals of their former girlfriends or journalists who deliver scoops from abroad and telegram them in, or telegraph them in Latin to protect from rival journalists. But then the scoops are therefore thrown away as gibberish by the editors who don't understand the Latin. The writer might be proselytizing in these books, but not at the expense of humor, or at least not always. Waugh was the kind of writer who would go through a bout of insanity based on some bad medication, as he did. At one point he believed he was possessed by demons, and then after recovering, he wrote a book about it. I was clean off my onion, he said. We'll hear more about Waugh, and then Phil Cly, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back. Evelyn Waugh was born in 1903, the same year as George Orwell, in fact, and the two are a fascinating contrast. Both went through English public schools, which are what we Americans call private schools, and both wound up experts in English prose. Other similarities, too. I won't dwell on those here because Phil and I talk about them. I don't want to step on that part of the conversation. Some differences, though. Waugh fell in love with the aristocracy and wanted to be like them. He wanted country houses and finer things. And Orwell was always sort of shabby and miserable. Deprived. I imagine him in Scotland coughing blood in a cold house as he finished 1984. Or maybe 
the period when he was the point where he was shot in the throat while fighting in the Spanish Civil War, down and out in Paris and London. That's Orwell. Their politics were very different, but they had a grudging respect for one another. In any case, Wall was the son of a publisher and seems to have come from a fairly long line of men who were jerks. Irascible might be the nice way to put it. Wall was a bully when he was at school. Tom Wolfe has said that bullies at school become conservatives and those who were bullied at school become liberals. I don't know if that's true, but it seems to have held up for Waugh. Several people have commented that Waugh exemplified that sort of permanent adolescence that one sometimes sees, where the personality and preferences and predilections, all the wants and grievances and patterns of behavior are essentially formed in those middle school and high school experiences. Waugh was a bully in school who lashed out. As a writer, he was much the same. He had friends and champions, of course, and those close to him said he was much kinder once one got to know him. In particular, he was praised for his generosity to his friends and Catholic charities and similar causes. He helped people. But there was a streak in him that didn't like people very much, and he leaned into it. He's one of those writers who would protest against being anti-women by saying, as Martin Amos did, that, what do you mean? The men in my books are all swine, too. Was defenders will say that he was an equal opportunity hater, the curmudgeon's defense. It's not just immigrants or outsiders or foreigners or people of color I make fun of. It's human beings, full stop. When he was told that he was a pretty un-Catholic Catholic, that his actions and conduct were the opposite of, say, Jesus's teachings about turning the other cheek or the meek being blessed, or against the church's teachings about how one should comport oneself. He said, well, imagine how awful I'd be if I wasn't Catholic. But we're looking for good fiction written by human beings, warts and all, not sermons delivered by saintly types. And so we look for people who can write good fiction, not people we want to marry or idolize. And Waugh calls into question what it means to be conservative or liberal or the member of a political party and what it means 50 or 100 years later to care. If we take as a general definition that liberals or progressives want to change society and conservatives want it not to change, it's not clear to me that we have anything we can state without knowing more about what exactly these changers wanted to change or their opponents wanted not to change. Politics changes over time. Issues are different. What's important to one nation in one era might look very different in another. I tend to want my society to change for the better. But if the change was, let's say, to eliminate democratic elections and be governed by oligarchs, I would vote not to change. If a writer is political, and yet there's something in his or her work that is lasting, it's not so much the politics that will matter, but the values that lie underneath. I don't know which bill was being debated in 1820 or 1910 and which party was on the side of advancing the bill or objecting to it, but I noted that if the bill was, was trying to stop children from being forced to work 14 hours a day in a sweatshop factory or trying to stop lynch mobs from stopping people from voting, I'm in favor. 
And if someone writes fiction and it's all about Jews taking over the world or something, it doesn't matter if that person is a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or Republican or Tory or Whig or whatever label applied in that person's time. That's a value I can see and reject. But there's another question we have here. So what? We can all agree that fiction is better when it's not self-satisfied or smug or preachy, no matter which side of the aisle it comes from, right? We don't look to fiction for that. So as long as a writer is not hectoring us, but is agonizing over decisions or living in the flicker, as Conrad might say, who cares what his or her personal politics are, right? We might want our writers to be saints and angels. I love hearing that a writer was kind and generous, but if they're no longer living and our money doesn't matter to their bank account, who cares if we read someone we find vile? If we get something out of the books, why not? It's our decision to take those views or reject them. We don't have to self-police ourselves and act as if we, if we read Mein Kampf, we'll all become Nazis. We might read Mein Kampf to make sure that we don't, or to recognize when others are, or to learn more about history. Which is also not to say, by the way, that you have to read Mein Kampf or Evelyn Waugh or anyone else for that matter. I do not care. I don't ever say that anyone has to read anything. It's up to you. Don't feel like you have to read Evelyn Waugh. There are deal breakers in Evelyn Waugh, and if they break your deal, that's fine with me. If you want to, that's great. But if you say, eh, he's kind of an ugly guy, I don't care how important he is or how famous or his reputation or how good his prose is, life's too short. All writers have this balance. There's more books than we can ever read. We weigh the pros and cons. We could say, ah, I don't need to hear what a snobby person thinks or a racist or, hey, I like dark humor. I'm willing to overlook some snobbery and maybe I'll hate read the parts that I don't like. Maybe I'll see just how racist this writer gets, not because I agree with racism, but because I'm wondering how it plays out in this book, in this story, or, or this writer's viewpoint at this time in history. Or you can say, nope, not for me, I'm out. Either way is fine. Waugh never voted in elections. That kind of cracks me up. He was an ardent conservative. He pushed hard for the conservative party to win, but he didn't vote saying, quote, I should feel I was morally inculpated, inculpated in their follies, and I do not aspire to advise my sovereign in her choice of servants. End quote. He was deeply Catholic and hated the Vatican II reforms. He complained that conservatives in his country, quote, have never put the clock back a single second. End quote. He thought Picasso's paintings were mesmeric trickery. He was nasty. He was formidable. He survived a plane crash. The public grew tired of him, and some of his works became tendentious as he got cranky and grouchy as he got older. But critics and his fellow writers never doubted the power and magic of his prose style. Clive James said, Nobody ever wrote a more unaffectedly elegant English. Its hundreds of years of steady development culminate in him. End quote. Clive James is a pretty good critic. That's a pretty that's, that's a pretty good quote. Wow. Okay, so we have filmmakers who are sensationally gifted and filmmakers who make us cringe. And yet there is only one Lenny Riefenstahl who is both. 
Yves Lenoir has gifts and he has flaws, some writerly, some personal, but there is only one him. And that makes him a pretty fascinating figure in the history of literature, no matter where you feel on the affinity scale, no matter where you land on the affinity scale, if you like him or don't like him. I wish I was born two or three centuries earlier, he used to say, and yet he was a sharp-eyed observer of his era, especially those years between the two wars, the two world wars, and just after, when the world was modern and getting moderner quickly. A Handful of Dust was written in 1934, after Waugh had converted to Catholicism, but before he began writing more ardently Catholic-themed novels. This is the one right on the edge. It's about a man named Tony Last who has been betrayed by his wife, as Waugh himself had been, with his wife confessing to having had an affair or having an affair early in their marriage, devastating him. Waugh traveled all over the world on journalistic missions, and he drew on some of these experiences for this book, A Handful of Dust, as he would for many others. In this one, A Handful of Dust, Tony Last ends up on an expedition to the Brazilian jungle, where he becomes imprisoned by a maniac who forces him to read Dickens to him, seemingly in perpetuity. Before we get there, Tony Last roams through the world of England, specifically country life England, and Tony tries to navigate his crumbling marriage, his devotion to an old home that others find hideous, and other high societal hijinks. A far cry from the world of war, which Waugh joined just five years later being commissioned in the Royal Marines. Perhaps appropriately, he was a courageous soldier, but he was so undisciplined that he lost his command, and yet he was critical of what he saw, especially what he viewed as a lack of training and organization, and in spite of, which he himself didn't always have, and in spite of being, basically being drummed out of the military even before he was injured during some parachute training, he apparently was such a forceful personality that everyone would listen to him, if not cower, including, some said, the generals. He died on an Easter Sunday. He went to a mass, sung in Latin, came home, climbed the steps to his study, and died of a heart attack. He was 62 years old. Two marriages, the first one annulled, seven children, 15 novels, decades of serving as the tip of the conservative literary spear. A perpetual adolescent, Christopher Hitchens said. V.S. Pritchett said there was beauty in his malice. And then there's Orwell, with that grudging admiration and those untenable positions, quote-unquote. We know the worst we can say about the vilest of Waugh's opinions, but what's the best? He revered an idealized past. He wanted some kind of authority to submit to, provided it was worthy. He longed for a sense of purpose. He loved traditions and guarded them jealously. How do we square this with who he was and, more importantly, what he wrote? Phil Cly joins us next to discuss. Okay, joining me now is author Phil Cly. 
a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, whose debut short story collection, Redeployment, won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2014. His 2020 novel, Missionaries, was named as one of the best books of the year by President Obama and the Wall Street Journal. He's currently hosting the podcast, American Veteran, Unforgettable Stories, and he's here today to discuss Evelyn Waugh's 1934 masterpiece, A Handful of Dust. Phil Cly, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me on. So, Phil, you and I have never met, but if it's okay with you, I'm going to start by blowing your mind. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know if you ever Google yourself, but I typed in Phil Cly and noticed three questions under the category of people also ask. Okay. And I was going to share those with you. Right. <laughs> and this I'm is afraid this to, is... to see what... <laughs> This is building towards something, so I'll count them down. Number three is, where does Phil Cly live? Number two is, what is redeployment by Phil Cly about? And the number one question is, is Phil Cly Catholic? Interesting, huh? Yeah. So now, part two. I typed in Evelyn Waugh and got the three commonly asked questions for him. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Number three was, how old was Evelyn Waugh when he died? Number two was, why is Evelyn called Evelyn? And the number, which I bet he got a lot in life, too, especially since he married someone. He married a woman named Evelyn. Yeah. Yeah. But the number one question was, was Evelyn Waugh (laughs) anti-Catholic? So there we go. The public wants to know. Well, you know, he had some he had some fights with um, His, uh, the yeah. tablet. A Catholic uh, newspaper was was oh, very yeah. upset with him. Was very upset with him over black mischief, and then handful of dust as well. Yeah, right. They felt as though you know this was a novel that he'd written after he had converted, and. Um, Oh, actually, I, 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 I've written the quote down from, from the tablet. So this was the sort of Orthodox Catholic take on, on Handful of Dust, re- yeah. referring to this Ernest Old Meadow. Somebody's got a name that could be in an Evelyn Waugh book. If he, meaning Evelyn Waugh, if he wants to trace tr- taste true happiness, he will make a clean Franciscan cut with the past. He will stop the reprinting of every ignoble book which he controls the copyright and will show the world that a writer of get genuine talent is not dependent upon malodorousness for his drawing power. <laughs> mm. Wow. Okay. So kind of begs some, a lot of questions here. So we've got, is, is Phil Cly Catholic and was Evelyn Waugh anti-Catholic? I could see why this would be a writer who interests you. I don't know if you're two sides of the same coin or you're both heads or both tails, but it does seem like we're talking about some shared currency of some kind here. So when did you first become aware of Evelyn Waugh? In high school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a, a Catholic school, a Jesuit school, and there was a teacher there, Mr. Connolly, who... I was part of a sort of like reading group. So uh-huh. we'd meet after school and discuss Catholic literature. And then also we, we volunteered at a, at an AIDS hospice in the village and we read some of, some of Waugh's work. Uh, then I ultimately read probably about seven or eight of his books. And what were some of the other, was, was it one week Graham Greene and one week Evelyn Waugh and so on, or was it, 
What else do you remember reading from that? Oh God, uh, yeah, we read a little Green. We read um, uh, Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, we read right. Chesterton. We read oh God, what were they? These great these Italian novels where there's a priest who like talks to a crucifix who talks back and it's like the priest's relationship with the communist partisans who he knows well. Oh God, they're very funny, very funny books. But anyway, a whole variety of of Catholic literature and, uh, and also some theology as well. Etienne Gilson's work made an impression on me at that time. Were you immediately taken by Yves Lenoir? Did this seem like the, the sensibility that resonated with you or did that come later? No. So he's not my sensibility as a Catholic. That's the sort of funny thing about my relationship with Evelyn Waugh. I don't love yeah. him as a Catholic in the way that I love Flannery Connor as a Catholic or Shusaku Endo as a Catholic. Right. Or even, you know, uh, you know, if you want to take a sort of comic writer, Skvorecki, the, the um, Czech, kind of brilliant satirical Czech writer who's <laughs> far less orthodox ultimately than than Evelyn Waugh would turn out to be, to put it mildly, but had a Catholic upbringing and a sort of longing for the beauty that a particular type of Catholic belief once offered you that the, the narrators can't really believe in anymore. Whereas Waugh has this kind of reactionary, aristocratic, even mm. while Catholicism, you know, even while lovers will will probably Catholic even while lovers will probably chafe at that um, because there's, there are other things in him uh, as well uh, where he articulates aspects of, of, of Catholic thought really beautifully. And I'm not opposed to uh, tradition. I think tradition is important, but there's definitely a kind of like reactionary and an aristocratic element in Wall. It'd be crazy to say there isn't. And that is sort of very at odds with a kind of, you know, <laughs> my notion of, uh, it's, it's funny, I'm reading like stories to my kids from like the, the early church, right? And yeah. the whole point is that it is, it is little, the literal opposite of the aristocracy, you know, and that, that, <laughs> right. that is a, a, an right. aspect of, of uh, Catholicism that appeals much more to me. So when I read Waugh, I have this kind of complicated relationship to him and he's, you know, he's got problems. He, that sensibility is, is, is ultimately not mine. And, you know, he's fairly racist and, all sorts of other, you know, unpleasant aspects of of Waugh. But God, he's a brilliant writer. Yeah. So it's the prose and and, and real and, insight. I mean, and and marvelous images yeah, and ideas. Right. You know, when you read like his, you know, his World War II trilogy, and of course Waugh, you know, served honorably in the war. He was a commando, but you know, you read those books and it's the same kind of just abrasive intellect that is very aware of farcical bureaucracy and absurdity and all, all the things that you that you actually find in war i mean you know i wish a, a yeah. navy seal uh, rather than the kind of memoirs that we've had coming out from from most of the navy seals who've gone on i wish a navy seal would write a sort of commando memoir the way uh, Waugh wrote a you know novel about those sorts of things. It would be a very different kind of book. Yeah. What you said earlier reminded me of the Orwell quote where I think it was something like, he is about as good a, as a novelist can be while holding opinions that are untenable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so, I mean, I mean, novelists like that could be pretty damn good. I mean, Celine, you know, is yeah. pretty unreal how good Celine is, and my lord, <laughs> what a <Yeah>. monster! <laughs> yeah. Well, there there is a feeling when you can enter into a world when the world is so available to you as Waugh makes it. He creates this world that's so real and it's so well detailed that you kind of enter into it and then you're willing to kind of wrestle with whatever the the characters are wrestling with because they're human and they're sincere and they're heartfelt. I do notice, though, that of the books you chose A Handful of Dust, which is kind of where he's less, he's closer to framing the questions than he is to providing the answers, it seems. Oh, yeah, for sure which is my preference for, for literature in general. Right. Yeah. Uh, also right. the other reason I picked handful of dust was it might've made sense. If we're going to do war to do one of the more military things, but, but I read this during officer candidate school in the Marine Corps. Hmm. So during the period where you're getting yelled at and doing lots of push-ups and, and all that sort of stuff in my downtime, I was, I was reading a handful of dust. Yeah. Cause I was that kind of weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little more about you so we can sort of understand where you're coming from. Sure. How did you go from, it sounds like, did you say you were in Greenwich Village or you were volunteering in the village? You grew up in New York City? No, no, I I was uh, from White Plains. Oh, from White Plains. Okay. Yeah. White Plains, New York is where I grew up. Which for a lot of people is, I know it's not the city and I'm I'm glad that you drew that distinction, but it's pretty close for people who are... uh, I commuted in, in to uh, go to high school. Yeah. So yeah, I went to a, a yeah, sort of all yeah. all scholarship Jesuit school called Regis. Right. And so I'd take right. the train in and get off at 125th Street and take the subway down. Yeah. And were you always headed toward the military? Was that something in your oh, family no. or was, yeah. Well, okay. it ended up being in my family because uh, I'm one of five boys and three of us joined the military. Mm. Two Marines, one Army. Not sure what happened there. Yeah. But my dad was in the Peace Corps. My mother... You know, worked for years in international medical aid. But service, I think, was always something that was very much valued in my family. And, you know, we were a nation at war when when it comes to the time at which, you know, people joined the military. We were in Afghanistan and then very soon going into Iraq. So it seemed like that was the best way to serve my country. Yeah. What experience were you hoping to get from it? Connect to something bigger than yourself? I mean... Service to country, really. Yeah. That, that was it. I, I didn't have a particular experience. You know, some people, you know, joined the military and they, they definitely wanted to be, a, you know, a pilot or an infantry guy. Or I didn't really care, uh, <laughs> which is weird yeah. to say. I mean, you know, I ended up. But I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what specialty I'd do in the Marine Corps until we actually had to put down our, our, our choices you know, in, in the basic school, which is a, a sort of after you've you've made it through officer candidate school, which is a sort of like trial by fire thing where they yell at you a lot. Then you go to six months of, of training where you spend a lot of time freezing. <laughs> well, you do it if you freeze, if, if you do it when I did it through the winter. And then you pick your, you know, like I these are my like top choices for military occupational specialty. And then they ultimately gave me public affairs officer. Uh, which is what I ended up doing mm-hmm. in the Corps. But it wasn't like I had a, a, a strong vision of what I was going to be doing because I'd, I hadn't grown up. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a diplomat, right? Like my maternal mm-hmm. grandfather, not um, not join the military. So 
So I sort of, you know, up for whatever. <laughs> well, that, I mean, patriotism, I think, was the thing that ultimately connected Waugh and Orwell, is they recognized mm-hmm. in one another, well, you know, even if we disagree on nearly everything to do with politics, we're both very patriotic. Yeah. And they you know, admired that about one another. Well, I mean, Orwell also had a kind of attachment to a certain version of old English yes. life. So there right. was that as well. Right. The the pub and the garden and mm-hmm. the things like that. Less aristocratic than than um, than Waugh, but still sentimentalized at points. Yeah. Right. If we're sticking to just Waugh kind of as a person before we talk about him as a novelist or just setting aside that for a moment, mm-hmm. it, it just seems like there's sort of this tension between a person who's cynical about everything and everybody. Yeah. And seeing all of the foibles of of humans and the individuals, but then also having a reverence for tradition and for institutions, because those institutions are also have been made by individuals and have are being occupied by people with frailties and foibles and so on. But to revere them almost seems like you're willing to turn off the cynicism in a sense. Is that something you identify with or is that something you see when you read Evelyn Waugh? Yeah, you get these I mean he believed in in certain certain types of virtues, right? And yeah, right. you know, he never fully cut off his critical sense. So, you know, if you think about the, the main character of Handful of Dust, Tony Last. Tony, one of the things that Waugh clearly finds honorable in Tony is that he's trying to sort of keep up this old house in the style the family and the household and all this other stuff and and to to Waugh that seems to be a good thing but he also makes it clear that it's ridiculous right the house has been was rebuilt in the you know late 19th century and it had been like some glorious house but is now utterly devoid of interest right and so it's like this kind of fake gothic house that everybody who goes through finds kind of <laughs> ugly, right? Right. And right. so even the thing that he's upholding is is kind of a is already a degraded tradition, right? Yeah. And yet Waugh finds something honorable in Tony, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think I mean I mean it's sort of very clear when you think about his relationship to, to religion. They're, they're much older currents, which he sort of traditional currents that he believes should be upheld, uh, which he is not at all cynical about. Right. But yeah. certainly almost anything in the modern world, he has this sort of acid intelligence and, and that he applies to it and makes it seem monstrous. Yeah. Can we say that it's sort of standing for the view that you can be, reverential toward the past. You can idealize the past. At the same time, you can be clear-eyed and know that those people in the past were probably just as as flawed and, mm-hmm. and lousy as the people of the present. But it's not a bad thing to be reverential about your idealized past because it gives you something to aspire to. That you can, if you can be as good today as as your conception of the people of the past or the things of the past, then it 
it's not a bad thing to try to be a better person. And it's, it gives him a sense of sort of rootedness and obligation towards others, right? So his sense yeah, of right, existing right. in terms of a lineage means that he feels he owes a set of, you know, he, he has duties towards those around him, to, towards, you know, the, the, the household staff, towards his wife, his, his children. He has a certain, certain set of obligations that he feels must be upheld. And against that, you have, well, the Beavers. Uh, so Mrs. Beaver and her son, Mr. Beaver, who Mrs. Beaver sort of redoes houses in the in, in the in like a new modern style, which is consistently described as horrible. She'll take you know a small house and chop it up into six flats and kind of redo everything in a modern style. And there's a kind of you know sort of everything is kind of mercantile. Nothing has any meaning because it you know it's whatever is fashionable or whatever you know, will make her the most money that she can convince somebody is fashionable. And so, and then there's sort of, you know, her son who is just kind of purely chases after extremely ephemeral popular social sets, right? Yeah. With no kind of grounding, right? You know, there doesn't seem to be any actual core to him. And against that, you know, Waugh is, is, I mean, he really stacks the deck. Also, this is, it should be worth noting that, this is autobiographical, this novel, right? And he's getting revenge against the man that hurt his wife ran away with. So that's that's partly behind the the savage portrait, right, right. but but, you know, more seriously than you know it, it's he's stacking the deck so that you can see the particular virtues and sympathize with the particular virtues of this way of life against a kind of, you know, unrooted, individualistic, mercantile, capitalist present where there's sort of no eternal virtues and simply self-interest, right? Right. And, you know, another kind of writer (laughs) would have made Tony Last the revolting figure. But he, you know, he just creates the characters so very, very well. You're utterly captured by it. I mean, it's funny because he is... (laughs) <laughs> he does some very funny things with Dickens later in the novel, but he has that kind of Dickens ability to just conjure a character into existence. You can see, you know, even if they're yes. just going to be for just like a page, you know? Right. They're immediately vivid and just in a few lines. We meet Bren- Brenda's brother during like the divorce proceedings. And this is how he's described. He was prematurely, unnaturally stout. And he carried his burden of flesh as though he were not yet used to it, as though it had been buckled onto him that morning for the first time, and he were still experimenting for its better adjustment. There was an instability in his gait and in his eyes a furtive look, as though he were at any moment liable to ambush and realized that he was unfairly handicapped for flight. Mm. Like, it's just, you know. And then that character is yeah. around for a couple pages. The dialogue uh, in that s- sequence is you know, really delightful. And he's a perfectly terrible character. Yeah. But yeah, and then he's gone. You can see why it was so hard for British critics to ever really ignore him. Even even <laughs> when they got to the point where they thought, you know, he's saying the same old thing or he's he's crotchety in his beliefs or his, 
you know, he's he's just a ranting old man telling people to get off his lawn or whatever they thought of him as a thinker or as an opinionist in his later years. They always still would say, but, you know, geez, that prose style or he's a, a, an acknowledged master of the English sentence and, and yeah. things like that. They just, you know, he he just had that facility that made him someone unignorable. Yeah. Okay, so. Let me try to sort of frame this in a context of war and the military that I want to ask you about. We talked recently with a biographer of Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. and we were talking about Tim O'Brien and and the American search for a good war, quote unquote, and sort of the 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 World War II generation and the reverence people had for World War II and how that affected the Vietnam War soldiers and and the role or the 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 stance that society had regarding the Vietnam War and kind of the just the 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 whole idealization of patriotism and and heroism and and all of that. There's a superb book that just came out by Elizabeth Samet, who teaches at West Point called Looking for the Good War, which is all about the sort of cultural creation of that mythology. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's so present, right? It's so present. You know, especially for for folks like me who you know were teenagers in the '90s when there was this huge kind of revival of of a particular type of World War II nostalgia, and you had yeah. you know, Saving Private Ryan, and the Stephen Ambrose books, right? You know, which right. were very self consciously telling a, a a heroic story, you know, which is you know very different than than you know what you get in some of the some of the books and memoirs of people who served. Yeah. And what I'm what I'm wondering, Elizabeth Salmon also actually was a guest on our show no, no kidding. a few years She's ago. Great. Yeah. Um, she is. She's fantastic. I don't know if you've met her, but she mm-hmm. uh, I know she teaches uh, at West Point, I believe, right? Yep. Yep. So uh yeah, she was wonderful. And s- such a fascinating life she's had and, and subject matter that she has. But it what I'm sort of wondering, I guess, is it almost seems like Evelyn Waugh would would look around at society in general and say, well, OK, I see the people who are thumbing their nose at the past. And what I see is that a lot of them are just saying, yeah, whatever, I'm just here to have fun and, and go to parties and do all of that. And Waugh says that can't be the answer. And a lot of people are saying well, we've solved all these problems and we're moving forward because we have all the right ideas and we have, you know, technological change or societal change or whatever we're advocating. We've we've answered the problems of the past and those people didn't know what they were doing and all that. And Wa says, you guys are, you don't know what you're talking about either. That That's not the answer. And he's saying, if I idealize things about the past, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm wondering if he would look at our dilemma in America and the search for the good war and say, you know, it's not it's not a bad thing to think that World War II and and that that the nobility of the fight against the Nazis or the the community that came together to win the war and all of that. It's not a bad thing to look at those values and appreciate them, even if you you know, want to acknowledge that war is hell and and there's a lot of awfulness that happens and all of that. Is that, do you think there's a a dialogue there that we're not having or is that, is that oversimplified or? I mean, I I don't think he would ever 
allow you to sort of rest your critical intelligence. I mean, you know, we know what he, yeah. <laughs> how, how he would like us to remember World War II because he wrote it, you know, and it's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak, yeah. but not without occasions for, you know, heroism and self-sacrifice, right? Right. He wasn't sort of nihilistic in his use of satire. And I think that, you know, Milan Kundera sort of argues that, that, that humor is always sacrilege, right? And I don't think that it that it is. Mm. Uh, I think that Waugh's humor can be savage, but he's not wielding it to sort of obliterate all values. But rather, I think what I think is probably the proper role of humor, closer to the proper role of humor, which is when you have sympathetic sympathy for the ideal and a clear eye towards the falling away from the ideal, right? Yes, you know, right. a, a pure cynicism. Uh, to, to be frank, tends not to be that funny, right? Yeah. Because at a certain point, you you just become parasitic on other people's values to 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 have something to attack, right? I think that the sort of the the best funniest humor is when there's something genuinely appealing there, right? You know, and 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 the humor's sort of insistence of messy life coming through against the kind of mechanical ideals, sometimes mechanical ideals. That insists on reality that isn't quite there, and you know, Waugh Waugh believed in seeing reality clearly. You know, that's one actually sort of one of the interesting things about his Catholicism was that I think he described himself as having converted because of clear, like, intellectual conversion, right? Yeah, right. But it wasn't it wasn't like this sort of like passionate mystical thing. He felt that just sort of clearly, if you understood what Catholicism was saying, you know, what it upheld, how it functioned in life. This was clearly the way to be, right? This was clearly true. And so an honest approach towards reality is how you come to the truth and how you come to the true faith. Did he want the church or priests to supply for him a sort of authority or a a kind of structure that where he could just say, look, I, I, I get it. I don't know what the answer is, but these people do, and I'm willing to just listen to them and accept what they say. I don't think so. Uh, I don't get that sense from him that there was any yeah. turning off the intellect ever. He would examine it and 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 examine the doctrine and interrogate it. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny the role religion plays in in Handful of Dust too, because it's just sort of like <laughs> like Anglicanism on its last legs. It's very funny. The main character, Tony Last, he goes to, to church services out of a sense of duty because that's what's supposed to be done. But there's no conviction in it. And when his child dies, which is a really tremendously powerful scene, you know, the the vicar, I guess, comes and Mr. Tendril, and he says, this is no time for religion, right? A time like this is no time for religion. And the, and the throughout, the vicar gives these sermons that he's recycled from World War One. Uh, so every every time he attends service, you get these these you know sermons that are like as if he's talking to British Tommies in the trenches <laughs> or like yeah. you know in Africa, and he's got this Christmas <laughs> sermon that he always gives. Um, <laughs> I'll just hear right. how difficult it is for us. He began blandly surveying his congregation who coughed into their mufflers and chafed their chilblains under their woolen gloves to realize that this is indeed Christmas 
Instead of the glowing log fires and windows tight shuttered against the drifting snow, we have only the harsh glare of the alien sun. Instead of the placid oxen ath of Bethlehem, we have for companions the ravening tiger and the exotic camel, the furtive jackal and the ponderous element, and so on through the fade pages of faded manuscript. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, it, it kind of reminded me, as you were talking, I was thinking of something that has always stuck with me, and I it always bothered me a little bit. I never knew why, and I think maybe now I know, is another satirist, John Stewart. And especially when he was kind of at the height of his powers at, at The Daily Show, and he would show a lot of clips of, of newscasters saying, you know, catching them in hypocrisies and contradictions and things like that. And I remember an interview with, or uh, I don't know if it was an interview, but Geraldo Rivera was on some kind of talking heads show. And he said, yeah, John Stewart, he, he does little old ladies slipping on the ice. It's just one thing after another of bloopers, you know, that that was kind of his take on it was he's he's making fun of of other people's mistakes. And I felt like there was something reductive about that that wasn't quite getting at what Jon Stewart was doing. And and what I'm thinking now is Jon Stewart wanted the media to be better. He mm-hmm. wanted the the national discourse to be smarter. And so what he was what he was objecting to was all the kind of, you know, the blowhards and the people who talk out of both sides of their mouth and all of that, but not because he was looking to just mock them one after the other because it was fun to mock people, but because he had a kind of he wanted to hold them to a higher standard because he thought it would be good for society. And it almost seems like there's something similar to that in Evil and Wah, where it's it's like he's even when he's poking fun at religion, it's kind of it's funny, but it's it's only valuable for us because we know what Wah wants, which is for these for these people to be better. Yeah, I think so. It probably depends on the book, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking of, of like vile bodies. It's been a while since I've read that. I mean, sometimes as a humorist, he's he's also just going for the laugh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Which Stewart probably is a lot of the time, too. Yeah, yeah, which is fine, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. A funny enough joke. <laughs> a funny enough yeah. joke will be... Uh, we could use it, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pays the bills for John Stewart. <laughs> it justifies itself. Okay, so let me ask you about something you've written about your military experience in the war in Iraq. And you kind of made the case, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but you made the case for not just saying to a veteran, we honor your service and leaving it at that, that it was, I don't know if you felt like people were afraid to engage further mm-hmm. or just were concerned that they were going to bring up some unpleasant topic or mm-hmm. but it seems like you want there to be more of a conversation about the experience of war and mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering if if that's the case why do you think we do this and what can we do better uh, I mean there's a lot there I mean, the, the biggest thing in terms of war, right? I mean, I, I would like a more engaged citizen, citizenry when it, when it comes to, to war. Hmm. And we've made a series of political decisions over the past 20 years that have allowed us to not think about it 
even as we are sort of actively engaged all over the world. Yeah. You know, we don't really, you know, Congress doesn't really vote on wars anymore because there's an open-ended authorization for the use of of military force in 2001, which is, you know, being used in all kinds of places. It was, and, and against groups that was never intended for, you know, so we don't have a situation where the president has to come before Congress on any kind of regular basis and ask them to make a decision on, you know, what we're doing, whether it's worth it, you know, it doesn't have to make a case about what it's going to cost, what the benchmarks of success are going to be, et cetera. We've really ceded things to the executive. We've, you know, especially since the Obama years, uh, relied very heavily on special operations and drones and airstrikes mm-hmm. and sort of working with partner forces in terms of how we prosecute wars, as well as a heavy reliance on mercenaries. And that has a lot of sort of follow-on costs. And so, you know, I, I would like to see some of those political decisions reversed so that we, you know, we actually regularly debate these issues as a society, as a country. And part of that, I think, means, you know, the average citizen needs to feel empowered to to talk about war, to claim, you know, stake a strong position on it. Right. It needs to be a sort of very open and freewheeling political discussion. Um, and I feel like it's just not. Yeah. And, and yeah. then also sort of interpersonally, I think when you're interacting with veterans, I think there's often a, a sense, I mean, for one thing, there's a lot of cultural garbage out there uh, about veterans, you know, and sort of veer from these kind of in overhyped sort of masculine badass fantasies to like these images of veterans as sort of uh, traumatized, mm. kind of broken creatures. Uh, I've certainly, <laughs> certainly right. encountered that myself. I remember one guy at a bar telling me that all Iraq veterans were going to snap after 10 years. Uh, I'd been back three, so I had seven left, you know, uh, <laughs> at that point. You know, he wasn't trying to be mean. He just wanted me to know. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then also these sort of ideas that like, you know, if you haven't been to war, you can never understand what it is, you know, that sort of intense experience is incommunicable. And therefore, you know, the veteran can kind of pontificate about war and everybody else can just listen, but they can't actually meaningfully engage in that discussion. I think that's, that's nonsense. Yeah. And it's not helpful to veterans, you know, to sort right. of, you know, it seems like you're putting them on a box, but you know, if you, if, if you declare very loudly that, you know, important, aspects of somebody's personality are fundamentally incommunicable. They can't actually meaningfully talk about them with other human beings. You're just isolating them. Um, you're just driving wedges between people where they, you know, m- where there might be productive engagement, you know, right. I've learned a lot about how to recontextualize and think about my t- time in the service through conversations with people who were never at war. Right. Because that's how yeah. human beings work. Yeah. Things that are central to our identity are confusing not just to other people, they're confusing to us as well. And we figure those things out and what they mean through conversation with other people, open, trusting conversation, you know, and that can't be so fiercely guarded or, or just is not going to work. And that's, that's good for no one. Right. It's almost uh, your work is compared over and over to Joseph Conrad. And it reminds me a lot of Heart of Darkness and, and Conrad's kind of the the view of what's happening may be good what's happening may be bad but what i can tell you is that it's happening off stage mm. that when when marlo goes to london and talks to kurtz's beloved he doesn't 
tell her anything about what he learned about Kurtz. The last word he said was your name. Your name. I know. Yeah. There's a lot of people when ending. it comes to war who want to be told <laughs> the last word he said was your name. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of flattering, self-flattering lies that we like to be told about war and everything else in between. But yeah. 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 And that may be the right decision for a, a grieving mother or something. And I'm certainly not trying to, you know, hurt anyone's feelings or, or anything like that. But it does seem like as a society, if you're kind of, you know, zooming along and every decision is happening elsewhere or is not even being discussed or made and every every consequence is invisible... Uh, it feels like there is something big and problematic about asking people to participate in this and then asking them to come home and and having it be like, uh, it almost feels like gaslighting Mm -hmm. to sort of say, what you're going to do is going to be absolutely monumental and will be part of, you know, the most extremes you've ever seen and something you may be in great physical danger or in great emotional highs and lows and then when you come back, we're going to clap politely and keep our mouths shut. Yeah. Mm. So what do we do other than read your fiction, which seems like a good place to start? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let's sell some books while we're here. But how do we get beyond this? I guess you're, you're proposing that if we started having, you know, Congress have to wrestle with these issues, they would bring them to the fore and, and so on. Yeah. But is there... Is there something that people or communities can do that will help us kind of be closer to reality when it comes to veterans and war? Find out if there is a agency around you that is resettling Afghans. Mm. There are a lot of people coming through. I mean, there's any number of ways that, that folks can help. There is a real financial need, but there are practical things that people can do and, you know, things that people can do in person that will be meaningful. I think that, you know, there, there are a million other areas in terms of military policy where you can make small but meaningful efforts. And, you know, beyond that, I mean, you know, what I just said had a lot to do with our political culture. I think there's a certain amount that's about not, not accepting, you know, BS, Mm, not accepting it, by the way, when Joe Biden pulls troops out of Afghanistan and claims that we're no longer at war you know, and the Times had an article not long after that about a speech that Joe Biden gave, you know, the first time that America hadn't been at war in, in, in decades. And it was like, well, we're still at war. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, right. We still have a couple thousand troops in Iraq. We're still killing people in about at least seven countries, possibly four more directly and engaged in counterterrorism operations in a whole in dozens of countries in lots of different places. Uh, it's just that we're doing it now in a way that is designed to, you know, raise as little public interest as possible. So not accepting that. But then, you know, there are also more practical things that people can do, sort of more immediate things that people can do. Mm. I mean, and, and, and just feel generally empowered, you know, um, <laughs> to to not believe everything that is told you by a politician or a veteran. For that matter, like veterans lie to themselves as much as anybody else does. And there are plenty of veterans in public life who are doing wonderful things. And there are some veterans in public life who are who are full of BS and and 
<laughs> and, mm. you know, I think that respect for service doesn't doesn't mean deference or checking checking your intelligence at the door. So tell us about American Veteran Unforgettable Stories. What is the project? Yeah, so this is there's a great documentary that, that, that was done for PBS by Insignia Films called American Veteran. And I was I was one of the people interviewed. But, you know, there were just a ton of veterans that they interviewed from World War Two to the present day. And they sort of the documentaries organized around kind of pivotal events in a veteran's life, right? Because you have this huge diversity of perspectives and experiences and they wanted to get that diversity of the veteran experience across while still having like a coherent story to tell. And so what they did was they anchored it to sort of kind of pivot points, right? So, you know, entering the military and going through military training, mm. the experience of going to yeah. war, the experience of coming home. And then you get sort of very different reflections on that. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. But when you're telling a story that way, right, which is a really brilliant way to do it, and I recommend everybody watch the documentary, one of the things that you can't do is, you know, you have these interviews where you have really amazing people telling their whole life story, and you can't tell the whole life story because you're, you know, chopping it up and intercutting it with other people, you know, to focus on these pivotal events. And so they thought, like, we have this really incredible audio. We should, you know, put it out somehow. And so they asked me to be the host and I just sort of introduce, you know, a little bit of detail interstitially, but for the most part, each episode is just one veteran telling their whole life story, you know, who they were before they joined, what they did when they were in, what they did when they got home, you know, how that experience continued to change them. And just, you know, you can imagine if you had a you know, documentary crew who spent literally years interviewing the most interesting people they could possibly find and then mm. settled on the most interesting stories, I think it's pretty great. Right? Yeah. You know, we have the, the, the first black female POW, Shoshana Johnson, who tells her story, which is like really, she's also very funny, but like her story of, you know, being captured in Iraq and what happened to her. But also like, you know, one of the things that's really great about it is you get what happened when she came home, how, her grappling and processing with her, her experience allowed her to connect with other members of her family who had been in the military who had issues that they had not fully processed as well. You know, she talks about like <laughs> the difficulty on the dating scene being like a woman who's seen combat and been decorated, you know, dealing with like insecure guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, you've got like a, a t you know, guy who's one of the Tuskegee airmen who was shot down in his plane crash in Germany. And, you know, the first time he was ever integrated in the U.S. military was in a German POW camp. You know, we have, oh, God, there's um, my wife just listened to one. She was texting me how much she loved, loved this guy, Edward Field, who's a poet. And he joined the military uh, was in World War II, loved it. Right. Um, it like brought him out of this, you know, very kind of closed off world where there was a lot of like anti-Semitic prejudice. You know, he grew up in Long Island and all of a sudden he was in the military, which to him was very cosmopolitan. It introduced him to gay life. He was basically in an open gay relationship at one point. And then he, uh, when he broke up, wanted to break up with the guy, he was in the guy's unit. So he volunteered to be on a bomber crew, which is like the most dangerous thing that you could possibly have done. A quarter of the planes that we put in the sky in World War II went down, but he loved it, right? Just the, the sort of the excitement of it uh, and the thrill. He kept volunteering for missions even beyond what he had to do because he just 
got hooked on the excitement. Yeah. Really, I mean, really interesting stories. Uh, sniper in Afghanistan, a Vietnam era nurse, um, and what she went through, which is a really tremendous story. I mean, just like lots of just just like really interesting people who lived through some tremendous events. And yeah, that's yeah. that's basically what the what the podcast is. Do you find yourself struck by how when it comes to these moments in a, a soldier's life, in whether it's the first time in battle or the the day that you come home or something like that, are you struck by how common the experience ends up being, no matter how different the background, or does it seem like people experience those events completely differently based on? just, you know, personality or, or something uh, in them that the latter people experience these things very uh, differently. You know, there is no one. Yeah. I mean, veterans are as just diverse as any group of millions and millions of people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I like, you know, very different people, right. Who took away very different lessons from their service, but all with compelling stories. Mm. And some of them probably are, positive about it some of them yep. are probably negative there's probably of oh, course, yeah. the, a range of absolutely mm. yeah you know people like edward field who you know one of the people is a conscientious objector who the unit ahead of him accidentally killed a child when he was in iraq early on and began to just totally change his relationship to what he thought he was doing uh, and he ultimately ended up becoming a conscientious objector you know so his his relationship to the military and the war is very different from you know a lot of the other some of the other veterans right uh, and you have everything in between. Mm. I wonder if listening to the podcast and exposing oneself to that many different stories would help people know how to have these conversations with people when they come back because you're yeah. you're, you're not thinking there's some. There's some right answer I don't know. There's some secret that I'm not privy to because yeah. I wasn't a part of this. But it's just human beings who are all doing their best, but experiencing different things at different times. And it's questions I could ask without feeling stupid or mm -hmm. feeling offensive for not knowing the answer already. It's not some sort of Gnostic knowledge that you get the second that you step foot in a combat zone, but rather it's a set of experiences that people have had that they're continuing to grapple with and that whose meaning changes for those people over the course of their lives as, as they change and they get different perspective on it. Mm. That's beautifully put. His books are called Redeployment and Missionaries. The podcast is called American Veteran Unforgettable Stories. Phil Cly, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Mm, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Phil Cly for joining me. Do check out his books, Redeployment and Missionaries, and the podcast he is hosting called American Veteran, Unforgettable Stories. We are not new to the topic here, of course. We have in our archives a conversation with Elizabeth Samet who teaches at the U.S. Military Academy. And just recently, we ran a conversation with Tom Roston, who told us about Kurt Vonnegut's position toward war, toward society that sent individuals to war, and what it was like there and what it was like afterwards. And we have an episode on Tim O'Brien in our archives as well. And at least one or two on Joseph Conrad, who is war-adjacent. Lots of the themes we discussed with Phil are in those past episodes. Okay. People, 
We are steaming ahead, getting closer to the holidays, and our special talk with translator Stephen Mitchell about his new book, all about the very first Christmas, that one in the little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What a lyric. Fears. Did you catch that? Fears. Hopes. Sure, of course. It's the Messiah. The Savior has arrived. But fears. The hopes and fears of all the years. Right there in that little town of Bethlehem. That's good narrative. But Stephen Mitchell's unpacking of the nativity story is an especially good narrative as well. And he has his own good narrative of a life well lived. Please join us for that one. That's Monday. Thursday, this Thursday, we yeah, it's a little up in the air. We might have that long-promised Beatles episode. We will see. We will see. We'll have something good. We've got Mike Palindrome on tap for some of his Twitter talk. This time about his Tolstoy Together, which uh, came out in a new book. Anyway, please join us for that, for this one, for that one, for everything. For... <laughs> I want company. <laughs> I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>